Part of the job of leadership is declining requests that aren't a good use of time or resources. But how do you navigate this when the other party responds badly? On this episode, how to handle a person that doesn't easily accept a no. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 637. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the realities of leadership, and by the way, being a human being, is being able to say no. And sometimes, especially in our roles as leaders, we also need to manage the pushback we sometimes get from those no's from the most difficult askers. Today, a conversation about how to do that better and how we can move forward to manage that pushback in a more effective way. I'm so glad to welcome Vanessa Patrick to the show. She is the Associate Dean for Research, Executive Director of Doctoral Programs, a Bauer Professor of Marketing, and Lead Faculty of the Executive Women in Leadership Program at the Bauer School of Business at the University of Houston. She has been recognized with a number of awards for both scholarship and teaching and was named one of the top 50 most productive marketing scholars worldwide by the DOCSIG of the American Marketing Association. She was also appointed as a Fulbright Specialist by the U.S. Department of State. Vanessa is a prominent scholar in her field and serves on editorial and policy boards of leading academic journals. She is currently an associate editor for the Journal of Marketing Research and the Journal of Marketing. And she's the author of The Power of Saying No, The New Science of How to Say No, that puts you in charge of your life. Vanessa, what a great title. I'm so excited about our conversation. Thanks, Dave. I'm so excited to be here. I really love the analogy that you use in your work of farming. And at first glance, farming may not seem to have a place in how we say no and manage things from difficult askers. But you tell a story about farming and and specifically about companion farming. I'm wondering if you could paint that picture for me. Happy to. So Dave, I in in order to explain the dynamics between people and the way our relationships can be good and bad depending on circumstances, depending on the people we are interacting with, I draw on the wisdom of the natural world. And essentially, I show that The way the natural world, specifically plants, operate in conjunction with each other to either help each other or hinder each other's growth can give us some insight on how we as human beings relate to each other as well. Yeah, and it's really, it's such a beautiful analogy because the natural world, of course, informs so much of who we are, our biology, our our humanness. And also like so many things that we can take inspiration from of how people for millennia have handled this. And and there's there's two types of plants in the natural world you highlight in your work. And one of those types are the marigolds. Tell me how the marigolds show up in this and and how farmers use them to do great things for for growth. So marigolds are the wonderful companion plants that help 
foster and support the growth of other plants. So if you're a gardener, you would probably know that if, if you're trying to grow a healthy vegetable patch, you might want to plant marigolds around the border of that patch. Because what marigolds do is that they exude into the soil these good chemicals that protect the vegetable plants and help them build up their resistance to the attack of these microscopic worms called nematodes. So marigolds are the good plants that help other plants flourish. And in that same way, we all have in our lives people who act like those marigolds, our family, our friends, co-workers, our mentors. They are like these good plants. They help us succeed. They help cheer us on. They hear us out. They give us good advice. And so these are the people that we want in our lives. Yeah, and I think the thing that you point out in your work, and I think is true for many of us, is that we do have a lot of marigolds around us. It doesn't always feel like that every single day. But if we are, none of us get to the roles, the positions we have on our own. You know, so You're much. So right. Yeah, so much of this is an ecosystem. It's why nature is such a wonderful analogy for this. I've been so fascinated yes. over the years of reading more about trees and the natural world, like how much we just, the average human being, we just do not appreciate of like how much that ecosystem really feeds and supports each other. And it it helps us to become who we are. And those marigolds are there for all of us. And then there's also the walnut trees <laughs> in, in, in the world, too. Tell me about <laughs> yes, the walnut trees. Yes. If, if, if the marigolds are the superheroes in our lives, then the walnut trees are the supervillains. The walnut tree is a euphemism I use in my work to describe the people that are not so nice. The bullies, the tyrants, the jerks who make our life difficult. And why walnut trees? So walnut trees, particularly the American black walnut tree, is this beautiful tree that has a luxuriant canopy and it dominates the landscape. And it has these roots that can go out 50 feet away from the trunks. And the reason why walnut trees, trees thrive is because they exude into the soil a natural chemical called juglone. It's a herbicide. And it basically kills all the other trees in the vicinity or stunts their growth so that the walnut tree can thrive. Mm. Now, sadly enough, we sometimes meet people who are like those walnut trees. It's all about them. It's all about what they want. But we also deal with people in certain situations where we perceive that they are behaving like walnut trees. They are not walnut trees. It's not their identity. It's not their personality. But in that particular situation, we are not particularly thrilled with how they have behaved towards us. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because when I was reading your, through your work, I was thinking about someone in my life that at first I thought, oh, that's a walnut tree. And then as I thought about it more, I thought, no, actually, this person means really well. They do great things for the organization that I'm associated with with them. They're extraordinarily gracious in so many ways. But their behavior in the moment sometimes feels like walnut tree behavior. And and that's where I think thinking about where we're coming from from this and where the other party's coming from is really key. And you write, when you take responsibility for your empowered refusal, you don't simply cave in under pressure. Instead, 
you use your empowered stance to recognize pushback for what it is, spot the pushback tactic being employed, and confidently respond with courage and grace. And I was reflecting on that and thinking that it's helpful sometimes to just know first, like when you see that walnut tree behavior, either the person or the behavior, how that tends to manifest. Because I think like when you when you know what you're looking for and you spot it, you're like, oh, okay, now I see it. And you highlight some of the things that walnut trees tend to do. And one of them is they often will approach a ask in a face-to-face way, don't they? Yes. So the goal of the walnut tree is to try and control the situation and make you say yes to something that they want you to do. And so they do it using these persuasion techniques that affect and positively get compliance. Mm. And some of these techniques include asking someone for the favor face-to-face. So we know from previous research that you are more likely to say yes to a face-to-face request. In fact, 34 times more likely. Oh, wow. The second thing walnut trees like to do is they like to kind of create a power dynamic. And they do that by gaining a home court advantage. Essentially, what you might find a walnut tree doing is to call you to their home or their office or invite you to an expensive lunch where they are footing the bill. In Mm. all these situations, they are giving themselves a leg up in the situation so that when someone has taken you for lunch and wined and dined you and paid the bill, it's really hard to say no to them after that. And so you can create those situations in which it's really hard for the other person to say no. The third thing that a walnut tree will do is that they will insist on an immediate response from you. So face-to-face and immediate. And they might create a situation which of urgency. One of the things that I talk about in the book was about how a walnut tree might get into the elevator with you and as they are stepping out, hold the door and ask you something. So the door is beeping, the elevator is sounding an alarm, and there you are faced with a decision to say yes or no right away, most likely yes. And because of those situational cues, we get trapped and we say yes when we want to say no. And so recognizing these situations and recognizing our vulnerability in these situations can help us navigate uh, dealings with walnut trees. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned those because it, it that was the one that got me thinking about the person in my life. That immediate response of like, okay, I need I need an answer now. I can I can put you down as a yes for this, right? And it's so they're so assumptive and good at it that sometimes I've caught myself almost saying yes. Like I don't even know what I'm saying yes to. Precisely. <laughs> right? And yeah, but like knowing that and seeing that it it doesn't necessarily make it easier. But when you know kind of some of those typical patterns, it does make it then clear like, okay, it puts you on your defenses a little bit. Like I might I might need to be a little bit more confident in my language that I'm using going forward, which is part of your message in the book. And I love this line or these couple lines that you mentioned. You write, it is worth reminding ourselves that we either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. Instead of lamenting about the walnut trees in our lives and feeling miserable, 
We need to direct our energy to learning to respond to a walnut tree's pushback with strength and grace. And and the invitation from you is develop a resolute mindset. And we can really develop that, can't we? Yes, absolutely. So the the message in the book essentially centers around this idea of empowered refusal, which is a way of saying no that stems from your identity. So instead of looking outwards and looking at what a walnut tree wants you to do or anyone wants you to do, instead you need to look inwards and develop your response based on your own values, priorities, preferences, and beliefs. So in the book, I outline the competencies that we need to develop in order to be able to say an empowered no. And one of those things is that self-awareness. Once we know where we stand on particular matters, how we want our life to be, the choices we want to make, we can become more resolute in the way we deal with walnut trees. Yeah, indeed. And you say, first and foremost, it's not about you. Tell me more about that. So your refusal is about your preferences and your priorities, what you want. It is not a rejection of the asker. And once we wrap our heads around that, saying no becomes easy. We recognize that there is a trade-off. Whenever we say yes to something, we have to say no to something else. And so we need to choose really carefully what we say yes to because we are filling our calendar up with things that may not be that important to us, may not be aligned with our purpose. And so being able to know what we, how we want to spend our time and saying no to the things that do not matter is a very, very important and essential skill for us to develop. Yeah. And that really leads to one of the other points you make too, that a key mindset for all of us, and I think especially for leaders, is that pushback like this from other stakeholders, from the walnut trees that are difficult, it's it's normal and it's expected. Like it may not be every person, it may not be every interaction, but this is a common, typical thing that shows up for most of us. Absolutely. And I actually talk about how we deal with this. We typically deal with this by coming up with reasons why it was okay for us to say yes. So we have to cope with our reluctant yeses. And so we don't learn from them. This is a very essential point in the book, which is if we don't say no, we say a reluctant yes. And in order to deal with that reluctant yes, we have to invoke what I call the psychological immune system. And in the literature, the psychological immune system is essentially a set of coping mechanisms that come into play whenever we have to deal with something hard. So what happens is we say yes when we don't want when we don't want to and we do it again and again and again and we don't learn from those reluctant yeses because we've allowed the psychological immune system to kick in. What I recommend in the book is to take a deep hard look at the reluctant yeses, feel the pain of those reluctant yeses and resolve not to get into those traps again. In fact, you know, it, 
If you're dealing with a walnut tree, the best way to deal with the walnut tree is to keep dealing with walnut trees. So you get practice dealing with walnut trees as opposed to using these avoidant techniques of just avoiding people or coping with it by making up reasons why it's okay to say yes to a walnut tree. Yeah, I, I think it's it's so interesting that when we have fear of something, whether it is a fear of spiders, a fear of flying, you name it, like when people are working through that and wanting to lower that fear, it's often exposure therapy that is the most helpful. Yes. It's like little steps along the way, like, okay, I'm going to think about a spider or eventually I'll get to a place where I get in the same room as a spider. And then maybe eventually I get close to it. And it's it's just a little bit over time that helps it to become easier for someone to handle that fear. Exactly. And there's research that shows that if when we know an ask is coming our way that we don't want to deal with, we will avoid it like the plague. Mm. We will just run in the opposite direction rather than deal with it once and for all. Yeah. And that's where I love the invitations you make on, okay, how do we actually give a more empowered refusal when we do have a walnut tree who is making an ask that we do not want to accept for whatever reason? And there are some tactics that really do work on this. And the first one you say is to spell it out for them. Tell me what you mean by spell it out. So the spell it out strategy is essentially acknowledging the discomfort that you are experiencing with the walnut tree and voicing your position on the matter. So you could, if if a walnut tree is pushing you to do something and forcing you to answer now or to engage in something that you've already said no to, you can push back by reinforcing your position. You could remind the walnut tree, for instance, that you are the one who gets to decide how you spend your time. You could remind the walnut tree your position. You could repeat your position and say, I already have told you where I stand. You need to respect my decision. You could say something candid, like you've asked me five times. I've said five times, no, we can keep on at this, but my answer is not going to change. So essentially, you need to spell it out. And sometimes repetition helps because the walnut tree is so intent on getting their way that they are not listening to what you want. And your goal with empowered refusal is to give voice to your values, your priorities, your preferences, and your beliefs. And so if you feel empowered to do that, then you can't just back off when a walnut tree gets aggressive. You have to find the energy and the empowerment to repeat where you stand. The, the second strategy that I recommend is invoking a personal policy. So in the book, I talk about this notion of personal policies. And personal policies are simple rules that we set up for ourselves that guide our actions and decisions. So you might have a personal policy, for example, that you go to the gym every day at five after work. And that is your personal policy. Monday to Friday, you leave the office at five and you go to the gym because working out for you is an important goal. Someone might try to persuade you to stay at work for a six o'clock meeting and you have to state your personal policy as an, and announce it to the other person. My personal, my policy is that I leave at five and I go to the gym. Stating that and making sure that the other person knows that you have a rule very often 
gets compliance from the other person. So if the other person is pushing you, you have to push back by stating your own personal policies, your own rules, and and having a set of rules that you can lean on in these situations. Does that make sense, Dave? It does. And I had never thought about this the the language of a personal policy. And there are a few things I do with this as well, too. But I think it's Mm -hmm. really helpful to think about, okay, this, in fact, this just came up this week. I was someone, someone I really would love to have on the show. We're trying to coordinate schedules and they said, Hey, we, we can do the interview at 6am my time. And Mm. I'm I'm like, Mm. no, I just don't do. And I I have decided a while back, like I just don't do interviews at 6am in the morning. I'm not a morning person. It makes, it requires me to get up at 5.55 or 5.15 to really like be ready to go messes up my sleep schedule. And I just decided a few years ago, like, nope, I'm not doing that anymore. And it made it much easier in the context of when it came up of like, no, actually, there's lots of times we can find, we'll figure it out. But this particular time frame, I'm just not going to do at that time. But having decided in advance on some of those things does make it so much easier of the like common things that come up that are boundary limits, I think, for a lot of us. Like just thinking for yourself in advance, like what is that personal policy is really helpful and makes it easier when the no does have to be said. It's so true. And we often talk about boundaries. And the way I see boundaries are boundaries are barriers that we have to put up to protect ourselves from other people. So they it is in response to other people. Whereas a personal policy is something that you come up with based on what you care about, what you want, mm. that works for you. Like not having having early morning calls, for example, in your case. And what I argue in the book is that boundaries are like barbed wires. They are these defenses that we have to put up. Whereas I talk about personal policy is more like these red velvet ropes, like the stanchions that you see at Trader Joe's or a movie Uh, theater that guide your way. They're soft, they're beautiful, they're pretty to look at, and they are they just help you guide the way for yourself, the way you want to go. And I think that just that kind of reframing from a boundary, which is a defense to a personal policy, which is just a guide, a pathway that you have set out for yourself, makes a big difference in how we can rely on them to be able to say, no, these are rules that you set up for yourself. And so people respect those rules. We've actually shown in the research that when you invoke a personal policy, people are more likely to comply with your personal policy. I love the distinction you just made between the personal policy and the boundary. What a beautiful way to think about that. The velvet rope versus the barbed wire. I'm definitely gonna I'm definitely gonna think about it through that lens going forward. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about one of the other strategies that you advise is mm-hmm. to give the walnut tree a compelling reason that they can't push back on. And I wanted to ask you about this one because I, I was wondering how this works. As you as you also write. Many times in the book, no is a complete sentence, right? Like it is Mm -hmm. okay and appropriate just to say no and not to have to explain oneself. And the thing I've run into a few times is with a walnut tree, like I'll give I'll give a compelling reason, and then they sort of, or what in my mind is a compelling reason. So maybe you can coach me on this. (laughs) I'll say, oh, I can't do this because I have this commitment on whatever 
Tuesday night. And then inevitably the walnut tree will come back like, oh, well, we'll move it till Friday morning. No big deal. And like, <laughs> and so I'm wondering what what is a compelling reason look like that would be unlikely someone would push back on? So I find this a fascinating question because I have studied the differences between excuses and personal policies. Uh It turns out, Dave, that when most people ask us a question or invite us to go somewhere, we kind of want to find an answer. And so we reach for the nearest excuse, the closest excuse, the most compelling excuse in the moment. And we don't stop to actually think about why we really want to say no. And so a personal policy forces you to think about what is the real reason for why I want to say no. So I do this in the context for of loaning someone money. So for example, no one wants to loan other people money, right? And yet someone might ask you for a loan. And so in the context that I looked at, you could give either an excuse as to why you can't loan money in the sense that hey, I'm paying off my mortgage or I have some big expense that I am that I have, so I can't give you this loan right now. Right. Versus stating a personal policy. You could say something like, as a policy, I don't loan money to anyone. And what I show in my work is essentially that both the excuse and the personal policy work in the short run, in the sense that the person goes away and doesn't ask you for money at the moment. But What's the key difference is what happens five years from now when that person needs money again. Uh, If you used an excuse, that excuse is no longer valid five years from now. So that you've left the door open and that person is likely to come back and say, hey, I need some money. If you have used a personal policy and and you have stated a longstanding reason, a stance that you have on money lending... That person will not ask you now. They will not ask you five years from now or 20 years from now. I think that that is powerful reason enough to use personal policies rather than excuses in providing the rationale for your nose. There's one other strategy that I love that I've used a bit. Someone had taught me this a while back on advance requests. And I think that this is really a struggle for a lot of leaders in that we often get requests of, okay, a month from now, three months from now, six months from now, can you make a commitment to be on this committee, to attend this conference, to join this this team? And it's often really easy to say yes and to say, well, of course I would do that because it's so far out in the future that it's not reality anymore. And then when we get to the future moment, it's like, why did I say yes? Why did I say yes to all these things three months ago, six months ago, whatever it is? And you have an invitation to imagine it sooner. Tell me about that. So we, this is a phenomenon called resource slack, which is essentially we have this human belief or human tendency to think of time in a very odd way. We think of time as being, if we are really busy now, we think that this is particular to the current time and that we will be freer in the future. So we have this belief that the future is vast and abundant and that we will have plenty of time in the future, even though we are completely crunched right now for time. And so this idea in resource slack is to kind of fast forward ourselves, to do some time travel and to realize that the future is going to be as busy as we currently are. 
And so to understand that bias we have and understand this concept of resource slack makes us less likely to commit to things in the future that we wouldn't want to do now. Yeah, it's such a powerful framework. And the way I've used it tactically, Vanessa, is that when someone asks me for time, I think about if I had to make that time in my schedule today, would I still say yes? So if it's a request yes. for four or five weeks out or a month out or whatever, I think like, okay, if I had to make the time th today or this week, like in the immediate present, would I still say yes? And I have found that to be really enlightening, like how quickly that separates for me the things that I really do want to say yes to and the things that are a pretty clear no right away when I think about it through that lens. And then Interestingly, the things that I do say yes to then, I actually find that I have more joy in doing those things because I've already thought about it through that lens. And to loop back to what you said, like we're always going to be busy. I mean, especially most of us in the roles that we have in our community. And so if we don't do that or some version of that, we just keep making the problem worse. Like we're still busy in the future yes. and then we just keep adding on things. And the hard part about this is it does take a little bit of time to let it play out when our members struggle with this, one of the things I often invite them to do is forget, don't worry about this week and next week. Like those are already booked at this point. Start three weeks out. Like when people are putting things on your calendar three weeks out, start making the decision then. And then eventually you catch up to yourself on making a different decision. And it is really, really powerful. You're so right. And I think that what we need to remember is that we need to say things, we say yes to the things that really matter, not yeah. things that just take a few minutes here and there, because those few minutes really add up. So we are very often will justify why we should say yes to something. And we could say, oh, it doesn't take that much time, or this person really wants it. We don't really want it. And those are all bad reasons for doing stuff. The good reasons for doing stuff stem from within us. And those things things are time invariant. What matters to us today is going to matter to us two months from now. Well, you know, saying yes, for example, for me as a mom, saying yes to my child's performances, the events she needs to attend, those are hell yeses for me. They are resounding yeses because they are time invariant. It doesn't matter whether it's today, two years from now, 20 years from now. My child's stuff is important to me. Other stuff has to compete with that. Yeah. And I, I think like that point is so key you just made. Like our values aren't going to change for most of us, at least not yes. in substantial ways over time. So I can make a decision about my value six months from now today and it's still going to line up. Yeah. Vanessa, there's so much in this book that's so helpful. We're obviously looking at the most difficult situations in the context of this conversation, but so many situations where we do need to say no. And then when do we say yes in an appropriate way too? And to borrow a phrase from Vanessa Bonds, we have more power than we think. And approaching this so proactively on thinking about how to say no in a way that puts you in charge of your life, but also allows you to like zero in on the most important things. I think it's like such a wonderful message from the book. So I hope folks will check it out if they're you know, like me, struggle with this and are looking for ways to get better. There's so many other strategies in the book. And uh, I'm so thankful for your work. Thanks for sharing it with us. Vanessa Patrick is the author of The Power of Saying No, The New Science of How to Say No That Puts You in Charge of Your Life. Vanessa, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much, Dave, for having me.
If this conversation with Vanessa was helpful to you, a few related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 471, How to Say No Without Saying No, with Lois Frankel. We talked about how to actually use the right words and phrasing in order to say no. Sometimes the difficult party isn't the other person, it's actually us. It's how do we actually get the words out to say no, because... A lot of us don't want to disappoint others, so we struggle with finding the language that is both clear and professional. Episode 471 on exactly how to do that. I'd also recommend episode 546, How to Speak Up. Constant Locke was my guest on that episode. We talked about how to find the courage to speak up. There's elements of that, of course, in saying no to others, but also many other venues when many of us would like to speak up with more confidence and effectiveness, whether it be a formal interaction, one-on-one, in front of a large group. Episode 546, helpful to you, but also helpful to others. If you have someone on your team that struggles with speaking up, Constance's message is super helpful. Her book is a fabulous resource. Recommend that highly to you. And then finally, the other side of the equation. Sometimes the difficult person is us. Someone's trying to communicate to us, and either we're not hearing it or we're making it difficult for them to actually get the message out in a way that is clear. I recommend episode 597. Megan Rates and I looked at the other side of this, how to help people speak truth to power. Uh, Many of us have power in the positions that we have in our organizations, and sometimes we're doing things, often unintentionally that keep people from feeling comfortable to speak to us, episode 597 on how to do better with that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. I was emailing with one of our listeners just in the last week or two, and they asked me, how do you get access to the episode notes and listen to the podcast without having a free membership? And I said, well, You've been able to do that all along. Uh, We've had all of the episodes, all of the episode notes, everything on the website related to the podcast has been freely available on the open web since the very beginning and on all the podcast apps too. So you can find any episode on all the podcast apps, all the episode notes, and you can easily find any episode by uh, number as well. This episode 637, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash 637 in order to track down everything. What the free membership does is it puts a set of tools on top of that. So if you have a free membership, you can log in the website and do the thing that you can't do, unfortunately, on any of the podcast apps. I would love it if we could go on the podcast apps and say, hey, uh, I'm listening to the Coaching for Leaders. What are all the episodes on uh, organizational politics, which is one of the areas that this conversation is tagged under? Unfortunately, you can't do that on the podcast apps. At least you can't Today, but that's why we've made the website and the free membership available to you. So, in addition to all the things that are available through search and through the open web, we've put those tools in place so that you can find what's most relevant to you. It's a great way to navigate the library since 2011. Go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. It's going to give you access to the entire library, searchable by topic, and also all of my other tools. One of them is my own library. Once you set up your free membership and click on Dave's library, you're going to see I have databased thousands of articles, videos, episodes from other podcasts that I have found over the years on specific topics, all of them tagged as well. So if you're looking for a resource from Harvard Business Review, for example, or the Wall Street Journal, or another credibility piece, either for a group of people internally or a client situation, it's a wonderful place to start. I've done all the work for you of databasing that over the years 
all of that's free inside of Coaching for Leaders, the website. Go over and set up the free membership. And perhaps you're looking for a bit more. And if you are, I'd encourage you to look at also Coaching for Leaders Plus. It's one of the best ways to be able to get access to even more. One of the things that we're doing every month is recording a video conversation for an hour with one of the recent guest experts who's been on the podcast. But it's not me asking the questions in those cases. It's actually coming from our members directly. We have three years of recordings all available on various topics inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. It's one of the key benefits inside of Plus. Uh, You can find out more by going to coachingforleaders.plus. And I will look forward to having you back that next Monday, I should say, Bonnie's actually returning to the podcast next Monday. We are going to be responding to your questions. If you have a question that you'd like us to consider for our question and answer episode next time or a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback to submit it to us for consideration. And Bonnie and I look forward to seeing you back on Monday. Take care.